0: Hello, and welcome to Trinity Bible Media, a teaching, apologetics, and outreach ministry of Trinity Bible Church in Cypress, Texas, USA. For more information, please visit www.trinitybiblemedia.com. Isn't it interesting that the Bible introduces us to God as Creator in its very first sentence? There are no attempts to convince the reader He exists, There are no philosophical arguments or empirical evidence, and there are no concocted explanations as to where he may have come from. In the ancient world, creation stories typically started with the origins of the gods, and today, a common first task in evangelism, apologetics, or theology is to make a case for the existence of God. But nowhere in the creation narrative in Genesis, or the rest of the Bible for that matter, is there an attempt at explaining his origin or defending his existence. Instead, Genesis begins with a simple statement about the Creator doing what the Creator does, creating. The Creator Himself is already there. Yet, even if an explanation had been included, attempts to prove the existence of God rarely bear fruit. The reason being that although we are all born with the instinctual understanding that God exists and that we are accountable to Him as our Creator, we humans have a nasty habit of denying those truths so that we may justify making our own rules and living lives suited to our own desires. But this denial is ultimately self-destructive since, as creatures, we are completely dependent on our Creator. Until we understand that fact and begin to act in accordance with it, we can never realize true meaning, significance, or flourishing. The Apostle Paul understood as well as anyone the futility of trying to convince a committed skeptic that God exists. So today, we will examine his line of reasoning in the first chapter of the book of Romans in order to understand why the Bible never even begins to make a case for the existence of God. Now, as we read this passage, you may notice that Paul consistently uses the pronouns they, them, and there. But don't take that to mean that his argument is limited to a subset of humanity, like a group of particularly nasty pagan idolaters. No, In this section of the book, he is using the history of the world to tell us that this condemnation applies to everyone who has ever taken a breath. His line of reasoning continues all the way through chapter 3, where he makes the fact that it applies to everyone explicit. So as we read the text, understand that Paul is talking about you and me as much as he is anyone else. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the apostle writes, Coming out of the gate, we come across a concept that is not very popular these days, the wrath of God. Many people, or perhaps even most people, deny that reality. Even professing Christians can have a hard time with the idea of God's wrath. Part of the problem is that we tend to project our own sinfulness onto Him. We think of Him as a really big, really powerful version of ourselves, when in reality, we are really small, really scrawny, corrupted images of Him. God's character is radically different than ours, and His wrath has a radically different flavor to it. His pride does not get wounded, His confidence is never shaken, and His anger is never irrational or uncontrolled. It's not like in a fit of rage He would smash a galaxy or throw an unsuspecting angel across the universe. Divine wrath is always a reasonable and willed response to an objective evil. A God who took pleasure in evil would not be good or holy or righteous. A God who looked the other way at evil would not be just. In other words, a God without godly anger would not be God. His perfect goodness, holiness, and justice, in contrast to our corrupt versions of those characteristics, is why we need a Savior. Ultimately, there will be a final, universal, and irrevocable judgment at the end of time. But the passage at hand tells us that His wrath is being displayed even now through the events of our everyday lives. And when we continue to the next section, we will read that he is handing over people to futile thinking and darkened hearts. In other words, he is giving them exactly what they are asking for, which is very often the most severe form of judgment. But this passage of text also gives us the reason for the divine wrath. And this is where we tie into the general impotence of trying to offer proof that God exists. If we rearrange Paul's argument a bit, we find that this passage can be summarized in four basic steps. First, God has shown or revealed aspects of who he is through creation. Second, those aspects, things like his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by all of mankind simply by observing nature. Third, mankind suppresses the knowledge that is received through such observation. And so the net result is, fourth, mankind is found to be without excuse because of this ungodliness and unrighteousness thus provoking the aforementioned wrath. Those four steps will serve as our outline as we work through this passage. Revealed, clearly perceived, suppressed, and without excuse. Now, the first thing that Paul says our Creator has revealed, or has been made plain to us about Himself, is His eternal power. Look into the night sky and consider the enormity of the universe in which we live. Pick a segment of the sky and count the points of light. The smallest known star is just a bit bigger than Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. It has a size roughly 1,300 times that of Earth. That in itself should be mind-blowing. Even if we assumed that all the stars out there were the same size as the smallest known star, the scale of what we see is staggering. In fact, there are so many of them that even if they were the size of marbles, the scale would still be staggering. But many of those points of light are not stars at all. They're galaxies. And each of those galaxies, in turn, is composed of billions of stars. The human mind cannot wrap itself around just how massive this universe is. Who has the intellect to comprehend something of such magnitude? Newton? Einstein? Not even close. No human mind has the capacity to process the scale of the created world. But an even greater question is... Who has the power to put it there? Of course, the ancient world was not privy to the things we have learned through modern astronomy. Their concept of the scale and the composition of the universe was limited to what could be seen with their naked eyes. Nevertheless, when they used those eyes to look into the night sky, they were just as awestruck by what they witnessed. King David writes about just such an experience in Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Again, that was Psalm 19, verses 1-4. through The natural world, things like the sun, moon, stars, trees, and koala bears, glorifies God by making His presence evident. Reverent and thankful recognition of His power and majesty brings a unique kind of joy to the human heart since such recognition, which is called worship, serves to bring further glory to Him. And that is precisely what you and I and the rest of mankind were put on earth to do, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Just as the heavens glorify Him by making His presence known, we're meant to do the same thing. That is, we're supposed to live our lives in such a manner as to make his presence known. Tying it back to our Romans passage, David is an example of a person who, when he observed the natural world, knew that someone had put it there. In other words, he clearly perceived the presence of the Creator. And that is the second step, clearly perceived. That is, we understand that he is there. This understanding is not the product of a deliberate rational process. It's not the result of mankind's search for meaning or some kind of introspection or philosophy. No, it's the creator making himself known to mankind, all of mankind, in a very obvious way. This understanding is instinctive. Just as the person who finds himself in a deep pool of water knows without deliberation that he must swim in order to survive, the person who finds himself in the created world knows without deliberation that there is a creator. This sort of revelation is clearly perceived by everyone, including those who have never had access to the Bible and never heard the gospel. Psalm 97 verse 6 reads, The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. We refer to this as general revelation or natural revelation, things that God has revealed about Himself through the created world. God is actually telling us about himself in the way he has structured the universe and causes it to operate. This is in contrast to special revelation, which is where God speaks to his people through a prophet or an apostle, that is the Bible. But through creation, the creator has revealed more about himself than the fact that he is incredibly powerful. He has also revealed his divine nature. But what exactly does that mean? After all, in the Bible, we find many aspects of his nature. Are they all put on display in creation? I think King David can help with this one, too. In Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, he writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Those of us who live near cities don't really appreciate just how majestic our view of the universe can be. In 2005, a few days after Hurricane Katrina, I was traveling through eastern Louisiana where the storm had knocked out all electrical power for a 75-mile radius. We pulled over somewhere near Slidell to stretch our legs. The night sky was the clearest I've ever seen. No clouds, no moon, and of course, no city lights. As I stood in the darkness and looked up at the canopy of stars overhead, the display was absolutely breathtaking. I saw things that I only knew from pictures, which, by the way, did them no justice. Just like King David, who gazed at those same stars 3,000 years ago, I felt my own significance dwarfed by comparison. He made all of this, I thought. Or as David put it, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The Lord didn't create the world and then after the rebellion in the garden toss it aside like some whiny artist disappointed with his work. No, he continued to sustain and care for his creation even after it rejected him. Our lives are intimately connected with him whether we worship him or not. And I think that that is what Paul is referring to when he says that the Lord has revealed his divine nature. We instinctively understand by merely existing that he graciously sustains our life, our breath, and everything else. So what should mankind's reaction to all of this be? Well, when a person receives something good from another person, you would think that the natural response would be gratitude. But that is not what we do with God. That is not what we do at all. Jumping for a moment to the next paragraph in Romans 1, I'm going to read verses 21 and 25. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Take note what Paul does not say here. He does not say that they should have known God or that they could have known God. Rather, he says that they knew God. In other words, he is not saying that God put his existence, power, and divine nature on display, but some people just happen to be looking the other way. It's not as if they missed a speed limit sign or a friend's new hairstyle. No, Paul says that we know he is there. We clearly perceive he is there, but we nevertheless refuse to honor him. And that goes for all of us. Left to our own devices, none of us respond in a way that brings glory to God. In fact, Paul said that we actually suppress such knowledge, which is the third step. So now we have displayed, clearly perceived, and now suppress. The idea behind that word is to press down or apply pressure against something, much like pushing against a spring. In other words, we actively push against or resist the knowledge that God has revealed about himself, making ourselves his enemy. But what does this suppression look like exactly? Let me give you an example. Atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say to God if he died and ended up face-to-face with his Creator. Russell said that he would ask, God, why did you make the evidence for your existence so insufficient? But that response begs the question, what exactly would sufficient evidence look like? And if such evidence were offered, how would he really respond? If God were to rip open the sky, stick his metaphorical head through the opening, and say, hey Bertrand, here I am. I'm 100% convinced that Russell would still find some way to reject what he was seeing. He would call it a hallucination, or self diagnose a severe case of psychosis. Russell would never admit without enlightenment by the Holy Spirit that God is actually there. This is the sort of futile thinking and darkened heart that Paul was referring to. This kind of person sets himself up as the arbiter of reality. The Bible has a word for it fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He thinks that if he refuses to acknowledge God's presence, then somehow that presence is not real. A. W. Tozer makes a good point concerning that kind of delusion, and I quote, Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So were every man on earth to become an atheist, It could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. Going back to the question of how an atheist would respond to sufficient evidence, we actually don't have to theorize about that answer. We have it in the writing of another modern atheist, biologist Richard Dawkins. After decades of studying the various life forms within God's creation, Dawkins concludes, and I quote, The living results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the appearance of design, as if by a master watchmaker, impress us with the illusion of design and planning, unquote. If this does not scream out our Romans 1 passage, I don't know what does. Look at what he says here he tacitly admits that he clearly perceives God's signature in the things that have been put on display in the things that have been made. That is, they overwhelmingly impress us with the appearance of design. But he suppresses the truth by saying that it is merely an illusion. And that is exactly what Paul said he would do. And now the chain is complete, displayed, clearly perceived, suppressed, and therefore without excuse. Like I said earlier, rebelling against God is nothing new. Let's face it, that's what atheism is, rebellion against God. Its roots go all the way back to the first pair of human beings in the garden partaking of the forbidden fruit. And there are examples of it throughout the Bible. The Israelites received the Genesis narratives from the Lord while he was bringing them out of Egypt and performing miracle after miracle. Moses would have written, roughly speaking, from the time Israel was preparing to leave Egypt, through the 40 years of wandering, right up to their arrival on the edge of the Promised Land. They had just witnessed, or were about to witness, the ten plagues on Egypt, the parting of the sea, the pillar of fire, the divine provision of manna, and God's own voice booming down from Mount Sinai. Yet, even with all these very visible miracles, there were still people who denied him. Some even wanted to return to Egypt where they would no doubt once again be subjected to slavery. How is that not foolishness? Look, everyone knows that God exists, but in our own sinfulness, we refuse to acknowledge him or worship him because we want to be our own autonomous gods. And so to summarize our basic thesis, neither the Bible in general nor Genesis in particular ever bother to present arguments concerning the existence of God because it doesn't need to. We already know he is there. And so his existence is rightly assumed from the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thanks for listening. Until next time, may God bless you. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get to know us better, please visit www.trinitybiblemedia.com.